Thank you for that remarkable, amazing reality that we've just sung, that the blood of Jesus speaks on our behalf. Thank you for your word that stands, and now take your word and encourage your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And I invite you immediately to just turn right to that interesting, fascinating, somewhat difficult to understand book of Hebrews in your New Testament. Now, we are in the book of Hebrews. We have been taking our summer off. We began a study, if you're newer to us, we began a study in the book of Hebrews back in February. Uh, this past winter, we studied chapters 1 through 5, and we concluded uh, about uh, the end of May. And then we took June, July, and August, and we challenged our church to be a praying church. And we are now, this Sunday, beginning to relaunch, retool, realign ourselves in a study to complete the book of Hebrews. And we begin with chapter 6, more next week than this week, because I thought that it would be helpful for us. Some of you are like me. It's hard to remember last week. And I thought that it would be good for us to take a few minutes and just do a running survey of where we've been in the book of Hebrews. Others of you are quite new, and you haven't had much of Hebrews. And I think today, especially if you will be careful to follow along with your notes, um, that you will be able to pick up the drift of the book of Hebrews quite rapidly. Others of you who've been here for these studies, but you haven't thought about it much all summer, I think you'll be refreshed as you remind yourselves of the great theme of this book. Now, I want to make a note, too, that um, last year, our teenagers, the Bible quiz team from our youth group, memorized and quizzed from the book of Hebrews. And they, uh, about 30, 35 of these young people memorized the book of Hebrews. And some of you will recall that every time we crossed into a new chapter in the book of Hebrews, we would have one of the young people quote that book, that chapter, excuse me, for the day. And so uh, next Sunday, when we cross into Hebrews chapter 6, we will have our young people back up to quote for us. Another little change is that because they were working on their memory last year, uh, remember they had made an appeal and signed a paper pleading, the, uh, uh, asking me, making an appeal that I would preach out of the New King James translation, and I did. And so they will continue to quote out of the New King James translation, but I'm happy today to return to my ESV as we complete our study. And so young people, thank you for encouraging us, and thank you for setting a great example to your church in your scripture memory. We want to answer three questions today in the few minutes that we have. I think we can accomplish our purpose. Uh, you need to understand that part of what we're doing today is we're laying a foundation for what's going to be a, a difficult message next week. Um, when we get there, even this morning, to talk more about this section, uh, we're going to be reminded by the author of Hebrews that we need to get off our milk and get on with the meat of things and right away in chapter 6, turns out to be one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible to understand and interpret. And we'll talk about more of that at the end of the, the later part of our message today. But we want to now answer three questions. Uh, the first question that we want to answer is simply, where have we been? So this is a refresher on the book of Hebrews so that next week we can hit the ground running. We're going to run into the first part of chapter 6, and it's going to raise the second question, which is, what in the world does this mean? 
And to help us then to lay a foundation for next week's message, we're going to answer a third question in the concluding minutes of our sermon today. And we want to remind ourselves of what do we know, because what we know the Bible teaches about this topic will help us in our interpretation and understanding of unfolding Hebrews chapter 6 next week. Let's get our notes positioned and let's go right at it. We're going to begin right in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, and in just a moment, but let's just remind ourselves that the author of Hebrews, what is it that he's writing? Who is it he's writing to? What is the point of his writing? Uh, let me remind you, as we ask, answer the question, where have we been, that the author of Hebrews, he's unknown, we don't know who it is, it, it's not time well used to speculate on that really, at least for us. The author of Hebrews, though unknown, is writing to a group of Jewish believers Hence the name Hebrews, okay? So they know the Old Testament. They were raised up in in Judaism. He's writing to them because he is concerned that this group of Hebrew believers are possibly ready to fall away from their commitment to Christ. You see, due to persecution, there's really two things that are going on. And we know from our study of the book, we can tell that though we don't know who the author is, and though we really know very little about the recipients, probably a home church or home churches together, saved out of Judaism to follow Christ, we know that the author knows his audience well, and we know that the audience knows the author of the book very well. They understand each other very well because of the language that he uses and the way that he confronts them. It's, it's very pastoral. It's very fatherly. He may have been one that was involved in leading them to Christ. And so he's gotten word that, that they are slipping, A, partly because there is persecution that is beginning. Now, he will remind us later in chapter 12 in the book that though they are persecuted, they have not been persecuted yet to the point of shedding their blood. Lankantau told me that he and his wife were attacked by Hindus in 2016, beaten savagely. I said, with rods. He said, no, they would have killed us if they hit us with rods. They didn't want to kill us. They wanted to hurt us. And so they slapped them with open hands, strong hands. They took their nails and scratched down their bodies, down his wife's body, ripping her clothing off of her, bruising them, beating them, humiliating them for the cause of the gospel. That's what's happening here in the first century. They haven't gotten to the point where Nero is feeding this group to the lions yet, but they are starting to get slapped around a little bit. They're losing their businesses. uh, They are having to face shame for the name of Christ. That's not easy. It's not easy. And not only that, they have been raised up in Judaism and whatever you've been raised up in is very difficult to turn away from. And so as persecution increases, as isolation sets in and some of the leadership, the disciples, the church planters have left and they have limited teaching, they begin to doubt and wonder and they have family pressure to return back to Judaism. To illustrate this point of how difficult it is to leave Judaism, let me use a parallel from a book that I have, and I'm going to read you the inside page of the preface, setting the stage for this interesting uh, account that is part of a biography. 
Augusta, Wisconsin, 1996. Late one August night in a small white frame house in a very strict old order Amish community that does not have electricity, running water, or telephones, a man starts a bloody trail across the bedroom floor next to the double bed where his young wife sleeps soundly. The blood trail snakes down the narrow staircase through the kitchen, out onto the front stoop, and onto the gravel drive where it ends in a pool so that Levi, age 21, will appear to have been taken violently from his bed. After a while, something awakes, wakes up Levi's wife. Perhaps it is the putrid smell of the blood or the barking dogs outside. She assumes her husband has gone to the outhouse, but even in darkness, she can see something on the floor. She sits up in bed, switches on the flashlight, and discovers the blood trail leading to the stairs and down. Shocked and horrified, she climbs out of bed and steps cautiously over the splashes of blood, escapes outdoors, and races across the dark yard to the house next door where her in-laws, her husband's parents, hear her urgent cries and pounding on the wall for help. After tearing through his son's house to see the blood trail where his own, with his own eyes, her father-in-law, Joe, must run across the cornfield in the dead of night to call the police on the neighbor's phone. When the police arrive, the house and driveway are immediately strung with yellow crime tape. Levi's wife, parents, siblings, friends, and neighbors are questioned exhaustively. At the break of day, police and bloodhounds search the farm buildings, grounds, and surrounding woods and cornfields. Even an aerial search ensues. Levi is missing and presumed dead. I first heard this story about five or six months ago in my office from Levi himself. When he told me that his story of faking and uh, faking his own death and kidnapping to try to escape old, old order Amish belief and tradition, I was fascinated and I ordered his book off of Amazon. So difficult to leave. In fact, they found him in about 24 hours. Within a few days, he was back home with his wife and it actually took several years for him to ultimately depart and leave with his family. Eventually, he came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For about uh, six months, he was attending our church. He recently moved to the Midwest. It's his story. You see, that's the mindset you need to have as we open the book of Hebrews. These are people that one day raised up in Judaism, believing the Old Testament to to be true, believing in Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, understanding that Yahweh was their creator God. One day, a preacher walks into their community, an evangelist comes to them, and, and he presents to them this, the gospel message of the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they accept for themselves, the substitutionary death of Christ by grace through faith in Christ alone. They go home and they look at their father and they say, I'm leaving Judaism. I'm a follower of Christ. You see, the Judaizers loved the law and they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. So now with a little bit of persecution, uh, with time passing, the writer of Hebrews knows that the recipients of Hebrews are waffling. They are struggling to maintain their sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so as we now answer the question, where have we been? We remind ourselves that Hebrews is a call to remain faithful to the gospel. 
and to not drift away. And they are drifting away from Christ, wanting to return to Judaism. Hebrews, understand this, is a book calling us to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. In so doing, the, 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 the author, the writer of Hebrews, he knows their mindset. He knows what they're struggling with. And so he begins immediately without introduction, without introducing himself, without laying an introductory message of grace to you, like the Apostle Paul would say, uh, without saying where he's writing from where he's writing, without any kind of greeting, he immediately plunges in verse 1, 1 through 3, immediately with his first argument, you do not want to leave Christ, do not fall away from Christ because he is supreme. The, the theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ. And he wants to argue now repeatedly a number of arguments that he knows they need to be challenged on because they're drifting away. But Christ is greater. He's greater, number one, letter A, than the prophets. Look at chapter one, verse one. Let's study the word together. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the Hebrew believers understood that God began to reveal himself through the prophets. But God did not give complete revelation of himself at one time, did he? God through the centuries has begun to reveal himself in different ways, in different times. And they know and believe that the prophets were writing about the truths of Yahweh, of God. The Pentateuch, the Psalms, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they were writing and they believed in the writing of the prophets and they loved the prophets and they esteemed the prophets and they memorized the prophets. And they knew that they were great men of God. And now the writer of Hebrews is setting up his first argument. Do not walk away from Christ. He's greater than the prophets. You see, in this latter times, he said, he has now revealed, God has revealed himself to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a revelation it was. And he now is the living word. You want more word? You want more revelation? You want to know more about God? You want to know who he is? Then look to Christ. He is the incarnate word of God. They've had a written word through the prophets. Now they have a living word. And he came to accomplish his father's will. And these, these recipients of this book are struggling. The prophets are great. In Judaism, they study the prophets, but you need to know we're going to add to that now further revelation of his son, the Lord Jesus. He's greater than the prophets. Not only is he greater than the prophets, but he continues immediately in chapter 1 after verse 3 and 4 that God, that this Jesus that they're thinking about leaving is greater than angels. Remember, the Jews were infatuated with angels. They loved angels. Angels are in the throne room of God. Angels were present at creation. Angels were the messengers of God to deliver his truth to people. Angels were present. Stephen said in the book of Acts, angels were present with Moses when he delivered the very law and they, uh, they loved the law. The law was their guide and angels delivered the law. And so they could not understand why they should continue to follow Christ. Is he really greater than the angels? And the writer knows what they're thinking. And immediately he argues, do not walk away. Christ is supreme. Christ is greater. He's greater than the prophets and he's greater than the angels. The key verse on this, verses five and six in chapter one, for to which of the angels 
In verse 4, if you let your eyes go there, he became much superior to the angels. For which, for to which, verse 5, of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, and today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to, my, to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. You want to know why you don't want to leave this Jesus? You want to know? Because he was set up for angels to worship. He's worthy. Don't walk away. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels. And then all of a sudden, when you flip to chapter 2, it's like the writer interrupts his own self, and we encounter the first of what we will find to be five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We've only seen three so far. Some Bible students believe that Hebrews is a sequence of messages that were recorded and put together. Others believe it is just a written epistle by this author. We don't know for sure. I tend to believe it's the epistle. He's writing along, and it is an epistle in our Bibles for sure, but how it was formulated is sometimes questioned. All of a sudden, the author just kind of interrupts himself and he wants to warn them about something. So Christ is greater than the angels. He's, he's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. And then in the text box on your notes, I isolated uh, the warning passages so that you can take this note, set of notes, and slip it in your Bible. And hopefully this week, you take time to read a little bit and review and refresh yourselves. Because we're going to have to move very quickly now to the end of our message. Warning passage number one, don't drift away from your faith. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What's he talking about what they've heard? What they have been taught by the apostles, by the disciples, by the evangelists who led them to Christ. You must pay attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away. I think that's a good exhortation for our church today. Pay attention to what you've heard of the Word of God. It's easy to get distracted. He moves then immediately to further his argument because they're really hung up on angels. And so he wants to further his argument that Christ is greater than the angels. The reason that they're really hung up on this is that Christ couldn't be greater than angels is because he took on human flesh. And so he then furthers his argument in chapter 2 that Christ is greater than the angels even though he became a human being. Because the psalmist said that he was made a little lower than the angels. Well, that means he left celestial and came to physical earth. But notice the key verse, 217 on this. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That means putting on flesh. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The Jewish believers don't realize that the greatest thing that ever happened to them was for God to look at the Son and say, it's time for you to put on flesh 
and to take on this role of the Savior of the world, which made him look like he was lower than the angels, but he was not lower than the angels. In fact, he was fulfilling at just the right time, Galatians 4.4, the plan of God to save the world once and for all, all that was reflected in the Old Testament that the Jewish believers understood in their Judaism of the feasts and the sacrifice and the religious holy calendar and worshiping at the tabernacle and then that move to worship in the temple and being represented by a high priest. All of that is fulfilled in Christ. And he was able to fulfill that and become the propitiation for the sins of the world because he put on flesh. So don't be deceived, Hebrew believers. Though he looks lower than the angels, he had to do this to become your atoning sacrifice, propitiation. He satisfied and he alone could go to the cross, spread out his arms, be nailed to the cross. The sins of the world heaped upon him. His blood flowed. And God, the holy God and judge of the universe, could look at him and be satisfied that a complete final sacrifice had been made. The atoning sacrifice was done when he said, it is finished. Sealed it with his resurrection. And to this day, by grace through faith, we go to the cross. The righteousness of Christ is ours alone. And our forgiveness of sin is found there at the foot of the cross. And we are raised to walk in newness of life, following after Christ with resurrection power. Praise God. They just didn't get it. But he's not greater than the angels. He had a body. He had flesh. Angels hover with eyes and wings around the throne room of God. No, you don't understand. He's greater than the angels because he alone could put on flesh and become the propitiation of the world. He goes on and I imagine their heads about explode when we get to chapter 3. And he says, not only is he greater than the prophets, not only is he greater than angels, but he's greater than Moses. You've got to be kidding me. How could he be greater than Moses? Moses was the highest of esteem, maybe equal even higher than Abraham. He led them out of Egypt. He was their deliverer. He was their mediator between God. He, he brought the law to them to teach them how to live so that they were superior to all the pagans of the world. And here he says, therefore, holy brothers, chapter 3, verse 1, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. There it is. Are you kidding me? Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Oh, it's a beautiful house he's building, but the house is not nearly as important as the builder. Amen, Tom? Can I get an amen over there? He's building a house for his kids right now. So you're telling me I should keep following Jesus because he's even greater than Moses. The answer is yes. See, the writer knows their mindset and then immediately he clicks into another warning passage. And in chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13, about that entire section, you can read it. Tell me what you think. And the great challenge there in that warning passage is now, number one warning, don't drift from your faith. Number two warning, do not harden your hearts. 
It's easy to harden your hearts. And he uses a great illustration here that we, that we used at length last spring in Numbers chapter 14. When the Israelites came out of Egypt and they had faith to leave Egypt, they had faith to cross the Red Sea, they had faith to follow Moses, they had faith to get up in the morning and collect manna. But when it came time to enter the promised land, they doubted, they grumbled, they moaned, they complained, they were afraid. They did not have faith to enter completely into the place of God's blessing, his rest, we call it. And so they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they died off. And he's saying, do not be like your ancestors. Do not harden your heart and miss God's rest. Ultimately, he's going to teach them that our rest is fulfilled in Christ. He goes on in chapter 4 to bring up another hero. And he wants to show them that Christ is even greater than Joshua and that the work that Christ is doing has, com- has extended beyond the work that Joshua did for them. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If Joshua would have finished the task that Moses was incomplete with, so there does remain, verse 9 of chapter 4, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest and do not fall by the same sort of disobedience. And our rest ultimately is found in Christ himself. But we have the capacity to harden our hearts like they did in Israel of old. So Christ is greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He then goes on in chapter 4. You can look up the verses. He's greater than Aaron, and he's greater than the high priest of the line of Aaron. And their minds are just boggled by this, and they don't understand. And so he, in chapter 7, when we get there, picking it up in chapter 6 in a week or so, and going on all through chapter 7, significant print is given by the author of Hebrews to the recipients of Hebrews to show them that our Lord Jesus is worthy of following. He's greater than even Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood and the high priest that visit the temple because he has gone into the Holy of Holies, completed the work final and is seated at the right hand of God. And they say, well, how could he be a greater priest than Aaron? He's not from the line of Aaron. And then the writer pulls out his trump card and he says, You're right, but he is of the line of, get ready for this, Melchizedek. Who in the world's Melchizedek? You just hang around here. You're going to become experts on Melchizedek because the writer in Hebrews talks a lot about Melchizedek. Well, it turns out Melchizedek, if you recall, we touched on this a couple of times already. Melchizedek worshipped Excuse me, Abraham bowed down before the, the priest Melchizedek, the priestly king Melchizedek, this mysterious character from the book of Genesis, talked about in the book of Psalms. Abraham offered him tithes. Abraham worshipped at his feet this, this Melchizedek king priest with no genealogy, no beginning, no end, a type of Christ himself. Don't, don't stop following Christ don't harden your heart. He's even greater than Aaron, greater than the priests, greater than the high priest. He's of the order of Melchizedek. And then he immediately goes into a long warning passage. And this leads us to our text for today. And as you can tell, we have plenty of time to dive into this. 
Warning passage number three, never fear. We're going to get out of here before you think. (laughs) Raise your hand if you think you're going to get out of here before you think. Thank you, pal. You come see me, I'll give you a $5 Chick-fil-A card. Okay? All right. Is that Duncan? All right, my man, you're a trumpet player too. See? But we better get with it here. No gambling from the pulpit here. No laying wagering on the preacher. You don't wager on the pastor, do you? You don't come in and place bets about whether it'll be uh, above or below 1230, that kind of thing. Come on now. All right, you listen well. I'm going to fill in the blanks. But you need to understand we're approaching our passage, and it is a warning passage. It's the third warning passage that we get to. 5.11 through 6.12, and he says, do not fall away. Do not fall away. So he says, don't drift away. Don't harden your hearts, and now don't fall. Do not fall away. Grow and mature spiritually so that you don't fall Let's go ahead and read it. It's 5.11 through 6, 7, or 8, and then a few comments so you can fill in your blanks, and you're going to get this, and then you get ready for next week. It's a tough passage. About this, we have much to say, 5.11, and it is hard to explain. since, Since you have become dull of hearing, the author of Hebrews is speaking in a fatherly way. He's shaming them. I have much to say about this, but you're dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be, and he's talking about Melchizedek, you ought to be teachers. You ought to know enough to be able to teach this stuff. You need someone to teach you. He's shaming them. You need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. That would be the ABCs of your faith. You need milk, not solid food. And in the tone of his writing, it's shame on you. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now note this, the chapter division would not have been here in the original letter. So this is all part of what he's saying. Therefore, because of your immaturity, because you're on milk and not meat, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, the beginnings of our understanding of Christ, and let us go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. What is that list about? And this we will do if God permits. We will get past all these elementary doctrines. And now he says this, let your eyes look closely and your ears be tuned. This is the point. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. 
Let's just stop there and let's just say, what in the world is he talking about here? And that leads us to our second question where we say together, well, what does that mean? Well, let's just quickly agree that when we cross into chapter 6, we immediately find a problem. First of all, we realize this is a difficult, troubling passage. This is a difficult, troubling passage. Now, in my, uh, in my great, vast depth of study, I conclude by reading that letter B is true. This is clearly a warning about the consequences of falling away. But what does it mean to fall away? And the consequences that he talks about falling away, that you can never come back to repentance. What does that mean? That's why it's question number two. What does it mean? Letter C, this seems though to me to teach, at least at first reading, it seems to teach that the Hebrews can lose their salvation once they fall away. You're following Christ, you fall away, you lose your salvation, you can never come back to repentance. Is that what it means? So that leads us to a third question. Let's ask, well, what do we know? What do we know? Uh, there's two, two, references, two points of reference here. Number one, when we have a difficult passage and we encounter a difficult passage, let's be careful to understand it in the context in which it is written. And this is Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 is written in the context of a warning passage. In chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's a context here. So we got to understand what is he trying to communicate to these people? We know he's saying Jesus is supreme. He's the greatest. Greater than all the prophets, angels, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and the high priest. Don't fall away. And then he says this because you would be trying to crucify Christ again and there's no return from that. Is this the unpardonable sin? What's he talking about? Second thing we want to know is not only the what do we know about the context in which it's written, but what do we know the Bible teaches at a broader level? What does the scripture, what do other scriptures teach? And what kind of light does that cast upon this passage? And this is your devotion for next week. I'm going to fill in the blanks. I'm going to challenge you. You'll get it. And we're going to just go through this list. What do we know? What do we know about losing our salvation? What do we know about walking out from underneath the umbrella of God's grace? What do we know about people who've been to the cross and accepted the finished work of Christ on their behalf and the blood of Christ has cleansed them from all sin? We know, Romans 8.1, that if you've been to the cross and you've accepted Christ as your Savior by grace through faith in Christ alone, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. That word condemnation means there is no remaining guilty verdict for him. It's a judicial term. It's couched in the teaching of the, of the work of justification on our behalf, which is a once for all declaration that the believer is declared righteous. Judicially speaking, God smacks his gavel on his judge bench and he says, you are now righteous. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I think I can get an amen. Secondly, there, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Romans chapter 8. Thirdly, that the believer is sealed. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is that the believer upon salvation is sealed. Write down Daniel 
Chapter 6, verse 17, next to that one. Daniel 6, 17. There is a picture when the king seals the lion's den with his wax, with his signet ring. It is sealed, never to be tampered with. It cannot be broken. It would bring death penalty. The king seals it. Our Lord Jesus, King Jesus, seals our salvation unto the day of redemption. Listen, he's had a whole lot more to do with your salvation than you have. And you couldn't make it happen, and you can't make it undo. And we accept this by faith. Fourthly, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to pass, to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The, the Apostle Paul speaking to his beloved Philippian believers in Philippians 1.6, God has begun a work in you, and that idea there that he who began a good work in you, that's the idea of of holding you for salvation. He's begun this work of salvation in you and he will continue to complete this work unto the day of redemption. That's the day when we stand in his presence redeemed completely in our glorification. Letter E, that the believer is guarded by God's power to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept, kept in heaven for you, First Peter. These are, these are strong words, and when you study the passages, you see that what he's saying is that this is an undoable thing, this salvation. Finally, Jesus himself promised that he knows his sheep. He said himself, I know my sheep. And they hear my voice, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish A lot of us worry about losing our salvation. This is a huge discussion. Some of us ought to be worried about it because of the way we embrace sin sin and the comfort with which we live in this world. But I'm telling you, when you've been to the cross, you've been washed by the blood, you're a redeemed one, you are sealed, you are kept. There is no condemnation. You will never perish. So we can say with confidence that according to the word of God, we know that our salvation is secure in Christ. God wants you to know that your salvation is sure. In 1 John, John wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I like that. That you may know that you have eternal life. So based upon our review of Hebrews 1 through 5 and just stepping into chapter 6 to prepare ourselves for future study, would you say that you are drifting or coasting or are you growing? Clearly, the writer of Hebrews wanted his church to grow so that they wouldn't drift. Where are you? Are you coasting, drifting, are you growing? Are you still sucking a baby bottle of milk spiritually or have you entered into chewing some steak? Are you maturing? Number two, are there issues in your life that are drawing you away from Christ? The Hebrew believers could identify some specific things that were making them harden their heart, fall away, move away from Christ. What is it that are outside forces or internal issues that are causing you to doubt your salvation? And ultimately, number three, are you confident and secure in your salvation? Take these passages, tuck it in your Bible, underline, read, read the context in which they're written, and become secure in your salvation. Become confident. 
that you are in Christ. This is the foundation now to answer this warning passage in chapter 6 next week. Let's stand together and let's be dismissed. And Duncan, you find me after church, buddy. Oh, pal, oh, friend. And so, Father, we, we need you. We need your help. We want to grow. We want to get off... We want to get off the baby food. We want to eat the meat of the word. We want to know Christ and make him known. And we want to grow in his image. And we want to take away all doubt. And, and so grow us and mature us as we dive once again into this difficult book, into this most difficult passage within this book. Teach us and show us and help us to grow confident in our salvation through this study. Thank you for the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he indeed is greater. Grow us in our faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.